Welcome back to The Law with me, D.K. Williams. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. This week's episode, number nine of The Law, we are going to deal with Heart of Atlanta versus the United States. This is a 1964 case that unanimously upheld, 9-0, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 under the Commerce Clause power. And they stated that Congress could regulate a motel that had one location in Atlanta, which is called the Heart of Atlanta Motel. And this own case was consolidated with it, dealing with similar issues, but not the same. The court applied it to the regulation of a local barbecue. Ali's Barbecue is a joint with one location in Birmingham, Alabama. Ali's is only mentioned in the concurrence by Justice Hugo Black. But it's all basically the same idea dealing with the Commerce Clause. So when all you know is that the Supreme Court says that Congress can regulate one hotel that has no location outside of Georgia in this particular case, or can regulate one locally owned barbecue restaurant with no other chains or anything outside of that one location, and they say that the Commerce Clause gives power to regulate those local businesses, you're going to kind of go, what? How is that possible? And that's a good, good question. It's perfectly reasonable, I think, to ask that question. For example, a person walks into a hotel, rents a room, gives them money, gets a key, stays there and leaves. How much more local or intrastate can you get than that transaction? Or a person walks into a barbecue restaurant, orders some food, gives them some money, gets some food. When he's done, he leaves. How much more local can you get than that? Yet this is a major civil rights case that says Congress can regulate two establishments just like that. So we've got situation where both the good and the service, good or the service, depending on the establishment, are purchased and the payment for it, the consumption of the good or service, all take place in one place, all locally. The entire commercial transaction takes place intrastate. Nobody denies that. Okay, The Supreme Court says, yeah, that's true. Yet Congress can regulate that local transaction. And we're going to talk about how they get there. So let's look again at the text of The enumerated power that comes into play here, the Commerce Clause power, Congress can regulate commerce among the states. This is exactly what it says. Congress shall have power to regulate commerce among the several states. That's the power right there. We've already talked about how that's been expanded in prior cases. McCulloch versus Maryland did it. Wickard v. Filburn did it. So given that context, it makes sense. But we know Wickard is ridiculous. We know it's based upon the concept that a transaction that is neither interstate nor commerce can be regulated by Congress because it's interstate commerce power. Again, I mean, it's, it's absurd, right? And we've talked about that. And what the Supreme Court did in Wickard, and for those that haven't listened to it, during FDR's New Deal, he set up this big price control and, and uh, output control of farmers about how much they could grow, what they could get paid for, and what they were allowed to grow. One farmer was told, this is how much you can grow. He said, you guys can't tell me this because I don't sell any of what I'm growing. I use it on my own farm for my my own livestock and we eat some of it. So I'm not selling it. So it's not commerce and I'm not doing anything. I'm not crossing any lines during these transactions. My farm's not located on a state line or whatever. It's all within one state. And the Supreme Court, in that case, where could be Filburn said, doesn't matter. If everybody did this in every state, it would affect interstate commerce. Of course, everybody in every state didn't do it, but that doesn't matter. So that's the basic facts of Wickard. And so what the Supreme Court has done in Wickard, well, I mean, they just really didn't pretend about it anymore after Wickard in the 1940s. They rewrote Article 1, Section 8, which gives Congress power. Congress is supposed to be limited to specific powers listed in the Constitution. And we went over 
what Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, when it talks about Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce among the states, how it's been rewritten by the Supreme Court in the Wickard case. Now it says, in effect, Congress shall have the power to regulate any activity that affects commerce among the several states. So it's not the power to regulate commerce among the several states. It's the power to regulate activity that affects commerce among the several states. It's a pretty big difference. They start using this phrase affecting interstate commerce as if it is synonymous with regulating interstate commerce itself. And now it's just accepted. Ask any law professor, any law student, they'll tell you Congress has the power to regulate anything that affects interstate commerce, even though the Constitution says they only have the power to regulate interstate commerce. It's a big difference. And they said the activity does not have to be commercial and it does not have to be interstate. And yet we can still regulate it under that power. So the sun is the moon, the moon is the sun, all because the Supreme Court has said so, and it's just accepted. And they use this premise, the Commerce Clause power, in Heart of Atlanta. So think about this. What, what affects your day? Everything you come across in your day is affecting your day. So what affects interstate commerce? Everything affects interstate commerce, in essence. So what is the limit of congressional power? If everything affects interstate commerce, congressional power includes everything. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. So how did we get here? Basically, the federal government wanted to do some stuff. The people in control believed it was good for the country. Wickard, FDR, and his bureaucrats wanted to plan the economy. They wanted to tell the farmers how much, what crop they could grow and for how much money. Now, we know central planning is ridiculous, but FDR and the progressives in Congress at the time wanted to do this. And the Supreme Court agreed that it was a good idea. They agreed on the policy So they stretched the Constitution to allow that policy. That is not how it's supposed to work. And this is a crucial idea, and we need to get into this. Whether or not something is a good idea or a bad idea, whether or not it's moral or immoral, whether or not it's good policy or bad policy, whether or not it helps more people than it hurts, none of that. All of those are legitimate questions, but they are not questions dealing with the constitutionality of whatever it is you're discussing. Those are different discussions. They're separate discussions, but not anymore. And you've heard the joke, probably. The things I like are constitutional. The things the government does that I don't are not constitutional. And unfortunately, it's really not a joke. When these issues come up on popular media today, listen to these supposed constitutional arguments. They aren't constitutional at all. You'll even someone mention a poll. Well, 67% of the people think that this particular proposed legislation is constitutional, and it's a good idea. When you start looking at polls to determine what words mean or what they say, a document says, you're not discussing what the words say anymore. Now you're discussing polls, which are politics. And the Supreme Court is not supposed to be involved in politics. That's why they get a lifetime tenure. They're not to worry about getting reelected. They don't have to worry about getting votes. That's the idea behind it. And when they're discussing these days on these TV shows about whether or not something is constitutional or not, they're, they're pretending to discuss whether or not it's constitutional or not. They discuss the positive aspects of the policy, which has nothing to do with its constitutionality. If the Constitution doesn't allow for some moral or just outcome, there is an amendment procedure, and it's been used many times. But pretending the Constitution says something that it does not makes the document, well, it makes a lot of it a joke, which is what's happened with the Supreme Court and its interpretation of the Commerce Clause. And a good example of this argument about how whether or not something is moral or immoral has nothing to do with whether or not it's constitutional or not. Let's look at Barry Goldwater during the congressional debates about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because he did not favor this particular piece of legislation. Now, he knew that discrimination was immoral. It was wrong. So how could he be opposed to it? Well, it's a good quote, very important quote from his book, Conscious of a Conservative. 
I will not attempt to discover whether legislation is needed before I have first determined whether it is constitutionally permissible. And that's what everyone in government should be doing. But hardly anyone does that anymore. And this was his position on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It wasn't the whole thing that he opposed. It was Title II, which is what is being used in the Heart of Atlanta case. That's the part that applied to private businesses like the Atlanta Motel and the Birmingham Barbecue Joint. So it is a moral outcome to say you should not discriminate against black people. I mean, that's more. it is immoral to discriminate based on race. But that is not the same argument as whether or not it's got a legitimate constitutional basis. We talked about Brown versus Board of Education, and that one was easy. We didn't have to worry about the Commerce Clause because public schools are state action. And the 14th and 15th Amendment said states cannot prohibit equal protection under the laws and you can't treat people differently because of their race, if it's the government. This case gets into private businesses, and the Civil Rights Act purports to give Congress that power, and that power was upheld. And so while we can look at segregation is immoral, and it absolutely is, and we'll find out that in 1964, 32 states had already banned it, so we were well on the way to banning it as a country because it was immoral. But what is the effect of Wickard v. Filburn, which gives Congress almost unlimited power over private individuals and private businesses and things that go on intrastate when the feds have been allowed to usurp this power that should belong to the states? This evisceration of these enumerated powers allows, for example, because I'm here in Colorado, the federal government, the DEA, now has jurisdiction over a Colorado plant, weed, grown in Colorado, harvested in Colorado, packaged in Colorado, pursuant to Colorado law, sold in Colorado, and consumed in Colorado. And yet somehow this is interstate commerce. I mean, that's, this is where the joke comes, right? This is where it becomes ridiculous. But that's where we are. If we had kept the enumerated powers, which party control Congress or the White House or the federal courts wouldn't be as nearly as big of a deal. But it is. Now that Congress can get into things beyond the enumerated powers of coining money, setting up bankruptcy laws, having a Navy, negotiating treaties or approving treaties, if they were only limited to those 17 or 18 things, depending on how you count them, in Article 1, Section 8, who is in control of the federal government would not be nearly as important because they wouldn't have as much power to wield. But think about this. This usurpation of power makes the Speaker of the House, this is just an example, who is elected in a congressional district, and congressional districts encompass about 700,000 people now, this one U.S. representative who's elected to the Speaker of the House, not by the people of the United States, but by other representatives, this one person who represents 700,000 people has enormous power over the rest of the 330 million people in this country. So one person out of 435 representatives in the House of Representatives, that person represents 0.2%, not 2%, 0.2% of the United States. And again, if they were just talking about bankruptcy laws and coining money, okay, we get that. That's not that big a deal. You don't have that much control over us. But now, Paul Ryan, or before him, Nancy Pelosi and whoever else has been, they control the House of Representatives. That person, for example, has more control over you than your own representative for whom you get to vote. The Speaker controls the House, and 99.8% of the people are not allowed to vote for him or her. One congressional district is 0.2% of the United States. So again, it's not a big deal when Congress is actually limited. It becomes a huge deal when Congress can do almost anything at once. When someone you have no opportunity to vote for at all has so much power over you. So back to some of the facts and some of the procedure involving part of Atlanta versus the U.S. So the lawyer for the motel was Morton Rolston. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. It's spelled R-O-L-L-E-S-T-O-N, Rolston. 
He was also the owner of the Heart of Atlanta Motel, and he was a hardcore segregationist. This is a bad guy. He represented his business all the way to the Supreme Court. He argued it before the Supreme Court. So this motel was near downtown in Atlanta, near Interstate 75 and 85. Those are still there. Motel is has since been raised, and now it's a high-rise Hilton. The Solicitor General who argued for the United States was Archibald Cox. He was later the special prosecutor investigating Watergate. Uh, there's a whole story about that. He subpoenaed tapes. Nixon threatened to, uh, to, to fire him if he insisted on getting those tapes. Archibald Cox said, yes, you're going to give me those tapes. And he was fired by Nixon in what is called the Saturday Night Massacre. Cox had been the Solicitor General for JFK when he argued the heart of Atlanta. During Watergate, he had been named the special prosecutor. So you've got Ralston, who's the attorney and who owns the hotel, the motel. You've got Archibald Cox arguing for the United States government. How we got to the Supreme Court is that Ralston, he sued for declaratory relief to enjoin enforcement of Title II of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 against his motel. The U.S. counterclaim for an injunction making him comply. The facts are stipulated. This wasn't a case where the facts are in dispute. Ralston, as the guy who owned the motel, refused to let black people stay there. Like I said, he's a bad guy. He's a hardcore segregationist. He's, he's bad. Three quarters of the guests who would stay at his motel were from out of state traveling. This is something that they looked at. This was important. So the three-judge panel, the lower level, held in favor of Title II of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. They said, yes, the Congress has power under the, under the Commerce Clause, especially in light of Wickard and, and those lines of cases, to regulate the business of a motel. It was determined that Congress had the power to enact appropriate legislation with regard to the place of public accommodation, such as a Pellets Motel, even if it is assumed to be of a purely local character, as Congress' power over interstate commerce extends to the regulation of local incidents thereof, which might have a substantial and harmful effect upon that commerce, that interstate commerce. They can say this because of Wickard, the ridiculousness of Wickard v. Filburn. This is a blatant, obvious usurpation of power, but it ended an immoral practice. And that's why the Supreme Court and the people arguing for it felt it was justified. You know, the ends justify the means. And maybe they do, but we need to distinguish between the constitutional argument and the moral one because they are not the same thing. And we talked about Goldwater, and he got a lot of flack. He was called a racist because he didn't support this portion of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Constitution meant something to him, and that procedure meant something to him. Some facts about Barry Goldwater. He ran a department store in Phoenix, Arizona. He was a U.S. Senator from Arizona. So the Goldwater family, Barry Goldwater's dad and mother, had started this department store in Phoenix. He eventually took it over. So at a time when segregation was rampant, he desegregated his stores. That's hardly the work of some, some staunch racist, like Ralston, the owner of the hotel. But he was not one of them. He was a member of the NAACP in Arizona, in Phoenix. Barry Goldwater worked to end mandatory segregation of public schools in Phoenix. This was before Brown versus Board of Education. There's a civil rights hero who worked mostly, or a lot, out of Arizona called Lincoln Ragsdale, a heroic figure in his own right. He was raising money for the NAACP for a lawsuit to fight segregation in Arizona. He went to Barry Goldwater. He wasn't sure what was going to happen. Barry donated. So Barry didn't just talk about it. He wrote a check to help end segregation of schools. So history's been wrong about him. Now, compare him with LBJ, who championed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as a known racist who used, let's say, racial epithets in casual language every day. Ragsdale later went on to write a book called Race Work. He said that Goldwater helped make Tuskegee Airman Chappie Jones a four-star general while he was in the Senate. 
while Goldwater was in the Senate. He funded the school integration lawsuit. He raised money to keep the Urban League solvent when it was on the verge of dissolution. So Goldwater was not racist. His opposition to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was on a constitutional basis, not a moral one. LBJ, of course, by contrast, we know about him. He supported legislation, purely political reasons, to win votes. And he has said that. He said as much. So in addition to the Commerce Clause discussion, which is the real point of the Heart of Atlanta decision, Ralston had two other arguments that were dismissed and they're not very good, but I'll mention them. He said that the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was going to make him desegregate his motel, was a Fifth Amendment takings because it was taking away his ability to segregate his motel. And he said that it was a violation of the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery because he's saying, if you're going to make me do something that I don't want to do, you're enslaving me. And of course, those are those were ridiculous. Those were gone. And Ralston, of course, says there's no Commerce Clause power. And that, at least he's got a legitimate argument here, no matter how big of a son of a bitch he is. So Ralston argues there's no Commerce Clause power to tell him what to do as a local owner of a purely local motel. The United States, however, counters that, quote, the unavailability to Negroes of adequate accommodations interferes significantly with interstate travel. And that Congress, under the Commerce Clause, has the power to remove such obstructions and restraints. So unavailability was an issue. And yeah, there, there, there's a whole lot of fact-finding and hearings in Congress about the pervasiveness of this discrimination throughout the country. And we'll mention that a little bit more in a second. But remember, the argument is that the unavailability of adequate accommodations for black folks interfere significantly with interstate travel. So the unavailability is a major point, and it's mentioned more than once. It's mentioned several times in the, in the case and in at least one of the concurrences. Black folks couldn't get a motel. That would affect interstate commerce. But again, we've already talked about Congress can regulate interstate commerce, not everything that affects it. At least that's the way it should be. It's not the way it is. They can do anything that affects interstate commerce, which again is everything. So unavailability was an issue that does affect interstate commerce because if you can't get a place to stay when you travel 500 miles, it's going to make it harder to travel. So that's the argument. And it's true. It does affect it. There's no doubt. But compare that to the availability of, say, gay wedding cakes, the famous Colorado case. A lack of availability is not an issue, not anymore. So maybe actual progress in 1964 was forcing segregation morally. But maybe actual progress now in 2018 is accepting that unavailability is no longer as big an issue and that we may no longer need to threaten government force for people to act morally. Because we have actually progressed, we've made progress, despite the way progressives use that word, we actually have made progress. We don't need to threaten people to make certain goods and services available. And for those who still are going to deny, say, let's say making a gay wedding cake, even though there's a hundred different bakeries within a you know 50 mile radius that will do this. So unavailability is not an issue anymore. And it was a strategic point, a major point in this case that there was unavailability. That's no longer unavailability. But those people who are still out there that might still want to be racist or whatever they may be, moral arguments can be used. Economic boycotts can be used. Public shame can be used. These are all methods that are superior to government guns. And isn't that real progress? Progressives don't want progress in this area. They want to hold on to the 50-year-old policy that we perhaps don't need anymore, but they don't want to hear that. They say, if you even make that suggestion, you're racist. But isn't it actual progress toward a better and more moral country to use moral arguments on the few remaining holdouts than it is to threaten them with guns? And make no mistake, there are guns behind this. If Jack Phillips, the baker at Masterpiece Cake Shop, 
is eventually ordered to make these cakes for gay weddings, and he refuses, he will be held in contempt of court. And if he refuses to report or refuses to go to jail when he's held in contempt of court, what's going to happen to him? A gun is going to be drawn. So every law is backed up by the force of a gun ultimately. And is that progress or is it progress to not need that anymore because the availability issue no longer exists? Voluntary actions are superior to forced ones. That's progress. And we've made it. So let's accept that. We have more progress to go? Yes. But let's accept the progress we have made. So back to the case. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 had 11 sections or titles. Only Title II dealt with the private businesses, which said that discrimination was prohibited by inns, like motels, quote, other than an establishment located within a building which contains not more than five rooms for rent or hire and which is actually occupied by the proprietor. So a small-scale private discrimination was still okay under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And also private clubs were exempt, but not motels like uh, Heart of Atlanta. The other 10 sections of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 were not nearly as controversial because they dealt with government discrimination, government access for everyone. So Title I, basically, well, it barred unequal application of voter registration requirements. I'm just going to kind of go through these so you get an idea of the other ones. Title II, now this is the one we're talking about. It outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, or national origin in hotels, motels, restaurants, theaters, and all other public accommodation engaged in interstate commerce, and it exempted private clubs without defining what a private club was. But Section 2 defined the phrase, affect commerce. Again, not interstate commerce itself, but anything that affects commerce. And it said that any inn, hotel, motel, or other establishment which provides lodging to transient guests, which which people traveling, affects commerce per se. So Congress is saying that if you're a hotel, if people are traveling from another state, you affect commerce. That's the Congressional Declaration. Now, that's back when Congress cared about having constitutional authority. So at least Congress is trying to assert their their legitimate constitutional authority here. There's a different definition that applied to Ali's Barbecue because he was a local restaurant and basically only served local people, but most of his food he ordered came from out of state. So it's a different definition for the restaurant. So Title III prohibited state and municipal governments from denying access to public facilities. Absolutely makes perfect sense. Title IV encouraged the further desegregation of public schools, authorized U.S. attorney to file suits to enforce it. Title V expanded the Civil Rights Commission. Title VI prevented discrimination by government agencies that received federal funds. Again, makes perfect sense. Title VIII required compilation of voter registration data. Title IX made it easier to move civil rights cases from state courts to federal court. Title X established a community relations service. And Title XI gave a defendant who had been accused of violating some of these provisions the right to a jury trial if contempt became an issue. So you can see how these dealt with government action except for Title II, and that's why Title II is the controversial one. So in discussing the Heart of Atlanta Motel, the Supreme Court had to distinguish or at least deal with what they called the Civil Rights Cases of 1883, which invalidated the Civil Rights Act of 1875. The court said that the 1875 Act broadly proscribed, prohibited, discrimination in inns, public conveyances, theaters, and other places of public amusement. See, it's very similar to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but the 1875 Act did it without limiting the categories of affected businesses to those impinging upon interstate commerce. However, the 64 Act, this is back to me, it does say all inns, hotels, etc. are per se affecting interstate commerce. So the only difference in this regard of the 1875 Act and the 1964 Act is that Congress says 
inns and hotels affect interstate commerce. They didn't say that in 1875. Whether or not Congress says it, however, doesn't change the facts. But the Supreme Court in 1875 didn't consider interstate commerce, but in 1964 it makes the entire difference, even though the nature of hotels hasn't changed. So in the Heart of Atlanta case, the Supreme Court says, since the commerce power was not relied on by the government in 1875 and was without support in the record, it is understandable that that court narrowed its inquiry and excluded the Commerce Clause as a possible source of power. You know, it's also likely that in 1870s, no one had the gall to say renting a room implicated interstate commerce. And indeed, without the farcical record, which came after 1875, there's really no legitimate basis to say so. But that's how the 64 Supreme Court distinguished the 1875 Supreme Court when they invalidated a very similar statute about hotels and inns. So next, the Supreme Court in 1964 spent some time discussing these congressional findings of the burdens, discrimination by race or color places upon interstate commerce. And there's really not any dispute about those things. Congress and the Supreme Court found significant burdens, absolutely, rightly so, morally so. And in this section of the case, one of the things they discuss again is that black people, quote, often have been unable to obtain accommodations, end quote, when traveling. So availability, again, is a significant factor. Here's at least a second time it's been mentioned. So compare that again to the gay wedding cake case. There is no inability to find a baker to make such a cake. So times have changed. Situations are different. Now, let's be clear about this. The Masterpiece Cake Shop is not a federal case. It's a Colorado case dealing with a state statute. And the state statute in Colorado and a lot of other state statutes are modeled after the Public Accommodations Law 1964 Civil Rights Act. But the Colorado state statute includes sexual orientation, something the Civil Rights Act did not do, the 64 Civil Rights Act did not do. So a Masterpiece Cake Shop, it's not a congressional power issue. It's not a Commerce Clause issue because it's purely a state case. But the policy is the same. What's superior, voluntary action or forced action? And actual progress is working towards voluntary actions. Another thing the Supreme Court noted that during the congressional hearings, again, this is in 1964, that these exclusionary practices were found to be nat nationwide, that there's no question that this discrimination in the North still exists to a larger degree and in the West and Midwest as well. So what they're doing here is saying this is not just a regional problem. It's not just the South. It's all over. And the prevalence of these exclusionary practices is a major point. And so if these practices have become no longer prevalent, hasn't the need for government force at least dissipated? So the Supreme Court, in upholding the section of the Civil Rights Act of 64, said, We shall not burden this opinion with further details, since the voluminous testimony presents overwhelming evidence that discrimination by hotels and motels impedes interstate travel. No doubt. But again, it goes back to the issue of affecting interstate commerce. Here they say impede, which just means negatively affects, instead of interstate commerce itself. Now we're going to tie this in a bow here shortly. So the next subheading in the decision is titled, is captioned, The Power of Congress Over Interstate Travel. They go back to Chief Justice Marshall, who we talked about in McCullough v. Maryland and Marbury v. Madison, for that matter. Remember, John Marshall was appointed by John Adams and was thus a Federalist. He was on Hamilton's side of things, powerful federal government. So in 64, the Supreme Court quotes Chief Justice John Marshall, and they say, The power of Congress depends on the meaning of the phrase Commerce Clause. They say its meaning was first enunciated 140 years ago by the great Chief Justice John Marshall. Just want to bring that up because you know when any court says someone is great, that they're about to quote, they're going to agree with whatever he had happened to say about that quote. That's why they're using the quote. And by implication, if the guy who said this good quote is great, they obviously are great too for using it. So quoting John Marshall, he says, The subject to be regulated is commerce. And to ascertain the extent of the power, it becomes necessary to settle the meaning of the word. The counsel for the appellee, in his case, 
the guy saying that Congress didn't have power in that case, the counsel for the appellee would limit it to traffic, to buying and selling, or the interchange of commodities. You know, commerce. Marshall then goes on to explain why actually limiting it to commerce, which is what the Constitution says, is too restrictive. Then the Heart of Atlanta Supreme Court goes on to cite an 1849 case called the Passenger Cases, and they say that the transportation of passengers is a part of commerce is not now an open question. Well, of course, nobody's disputing that, of course. If you're traveling from state to state, the actual travel, like on a train or in a car or in an airplane or whatever it might be, that is interstate commerce. So nobody's arguing that. Moving from one state to another is interstate. But that's got nothing to do with renting a room within a state. So the Supreme Court starts with the legitimate statement and then starts to stretch it because they say that this immoral conduct of segregation affects interstate commerce, but it is not interstate commerce itself. After several paragraphs, the Supreme Court in 64 says, it is said that the operation of the motel here is of a purely local character. But assuming this to be true, if it is interstate commerce that feels the pinch, it does not matter how local the operation which applies the squeeze. And they're quoting a, another New Deal case here, U.S. versus Women's Sportswear Manufacturers Association, which was decided in 1949, seven years after Worker v. Filburn, which is the FDR in a court sympathetic to the New Deal. And the New Deal would not work if the feds couldn't order local businesses around. So the Supreme Court, having laid this groundwork in the, with the New Deal cases, now can make this ruling. But the Heart of Atlanta court gets to the point here. Here's the quote. The power of Congress over interstate commerce is not confined to the regulation of commerce among the states. It extends to those activities intrastate, which so affect interstate commerce. Let's look at this. So what does the Constitution say again? Constitution says Congress shall have power to regulate commerce among the several states. What did the Supreme Court just say? The power of Congress over interstate commerce is not confined to the regulation of commerce among the states. These are opposite statements. Constitution, Congress shall have power to regulate commerce among the states. Supreme Court, the power of Congress over interstate commerce is not confined to the regulation of commerce among the states. These are enumerated powers that limit the power of the federal government, and the Supreme Court just said it didn't mean what it says. In fact, it means the opposite. They have effectively repealed Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3. They did this in Wickard, but here they are again blatantly rewriting the Constitution. And that's the crux of the decision. Then they go and they summarily dismiss those other two arguments about the involuntary servitude and the takings clause as they should. Now, again, this result is moral. It just isn't legitimate based on the actual words of the Constitution. And the Supreme Court notes, and I mentioned this already, that in 1964, 32 states had already banned the segregation. These state bans did not violate the U.S. Constitution. And isn't it progress to make these people change their minds instead of forcing them by gunpoint to do something? Court goes on, quote, that the action of Congress in the adoption of the act as applied here to a motel, which conceitedly serves interstate travelers, is within the power granted to it by the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. Okay, what intrastate business does not serve interstate travelers? If a local diner, say in rural Colorado, and say it grows all of its own food, or gets it from local places, and serves the visiting grandkids of a local resident. So the grandkids came from another state in this rural Colorado diner, gets all of its food inside Colorado. Can now Congress regulate that diner or similar diners because they are serving someone from another state? Apparently so, and, that, and this is a problem. The Commerce Clause was supposed to be a limited power, not a grant of unlimited power to Congress. So yes, according to current jurisprudence, Congress can regulate an entirely intrastate business because someone from out of state visits it. 
So the majority of states had already dealt with this moral issue without the necessity of rewriting the federal constitution because the states had done the right thing. Boycott, sit-ins, public shaming, national ridicule obtained the result, the desired moral result, while maintaining a federal government of limited powers. But that's not where we are. And I mentioned Justice Hugo Black's concurrence, where he's the one that mentioned Ollie's Barbecue. He says this in a separate opinion. I recognize that every remote possible speculative effect on commerce should not be accepted as an adequate constitutional ground to uproot and throw into the discard all our traditional distinctions between what is purely local and therefore controlled by state laws and what affects the national interest and is therefore subject to control by federal laws. I recognize, too, that some isolated and remote lunchroom, which sells only to local people and buys almost all its supplies in the locality, may possibly be beyond the reach of the power of Congress to regulate commerce. He says it may possibly, but he's not sure. And that says everything you know about how ridiculous the expansion of federal power has gotten. He's trying to paint a picture of something Congress can't get to, but he says he's not sure if they can or not. And if he's not sure about that, the enumerated powers, the Commerce Clause, have become useless. And I'll just briefly mention Justin William Douglas's concurrence, because he says the 14th Amendment is enough to rule in favor of the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that the Commerce Clause isn't necessary. He buys the Commerce Clause argument, but he says it's not the best argument. He says that state enforcement of segregation, like private entity, like the motel or Ollie's Barbecue, state enforcement of that by enforcing trespass laws, like ordering someone off the property, calling the police. He says when the police get there, now it's state action. Segregated schools, Brown versus Board of Education, state action. we got no problem saying that states cannot segregate by race. He argues that if a policeman or a sheriff or whoever enforces segregation via the trespass law or whatever it might be, that is also state action, and that is prohibited by the 14th Amendment. So this is not the, what the court said, but this is William Douglas's position. And he closes in his concurrence. I repeat what I said earlier that our decision should be based on the 14th Amendment, thereby putting an end to all obstructionist strategies and allowing every person, whatever his race, creed, or color, to patronize all places of public accommodation without discrimination, whether he travels interstate or intrastate. We might be discussing that concept in the future. But remember, that's not what the Supreme Court, the majority said. That's not the 9-0 holding. This is his personal view. And at least this argument doesn't eviscerate the enumerated powers. It may have some other problems, but it doesn't do that. Douglas goes on and he says, We admit, as all must admit, that the powers of the government are limited and that its limits are not to be transcended. He says this, we all must admit, as if it's a sad thing. <sighs> Sigh. We have to admit this, and that's the attitude of the federal courts. But even when they do admit it, they ignore it anyway. So that's where we are after the Heart of Atlanta Hotel case. Congress has the power to regulate purely intrastate activity if it affects interstate commerce, regardless of whether or not it is commerce among the states. And again, I've got to emphasize, this is the moral outcome. It's just not the legal one. And when the Constitution fails to be moral, there is an amendment process. And so let's at least admit that. Let's work through that and let's use it the appropriate way or the written Constitution no longer can protect any of us. Once again, I'm DK Williams. This has been The Law. It's been Episode 9, The Heart of Atlanta Motel versus the United States. As always, we're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Holler at me with your comments, please. I want more followers on Twitter. That's at Blue Carp. Also, follow me on Facebook.com uh, slash Blue Carp. DK Williams is, is 
is written there, but Blue Carp is the actual internet handle. And remember, my friends, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously. <laughs>